For February 10th, 2016, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can yeah. still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. Welcome to the Energy Transition Show. I'm your host, Chris Nelder. For several years now, there has been a robust debate about the many changes that are happening in the grid power sector as we transition to renewable generators and other distributed energy resources. We've heard a lot about changing business models, changing regulatory regimes, changing roles for utilities and other participants in grid power markets, changing paradigms, and so on. And that's all good. Those are all important discussions that we need to have. But what has been largely left out of the discussion thus far is the operational side of all this. How, specifically, grid operators will manage this new world of distributed energy and keep the grid working within its narrow constraints, and how the markets and market actors will need to evolve to support those new operations. I can think of no one better to tackle these heady subjects than Lorenzo Kristov, a principal with the California Independent System Operator, or CAISO. He's a mathematician, a statistician, a PhD economist, and an extensively published author on electricity grid markets, infrastructure, and policy. We also, as I learned at a recent event, share many interests, including playing Afro-Cuban music, him on the piano and me on the congas. We had a less than optimal Skype connection for this interview, so apologies for the sound quality. It improves a bit toward the end, and I hope that you'll stick around for the rather philosophical end of this show. I assure you that Lorenzo has some very interesting thoughts to share, and that you'll find it worthwhile listening all the way through. Indeed, Lorenzo is a deep thinker on grid architecture and power markets who, in his roles at the California Energy Commission and now at CAISO, has been intimately involved with designing California's grid power markets for over 20 years. So I'm thrilled to have him on the show. In his recent papers, Lorenzo has offered his vision of how grid power markets are evolving and where they're going as more renewables come onto the grid and as we move from a centralized to a decentralized architecture. And we'll link to some of his recent papers in the show notes. So let's go ahead and turn the geekiness knob all the way up. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Put it up to 11. 11, exactly. So if you're not a grid power nerd, you may have a bit of a learning curve to ascend here, but I will try to help you out by very briefly introducing just a few of the cast in this grid power market drama. 
taking it from the top, you have the transmission system operators, or TSOs, who run the top level of the grid, from the power plants through the high voltage transmission networks and down to where they connect to the distribution grids. You have the regional transmission organizations, or RTOs, and independent system operators, or ISOs, which operate the regional grids and wholesale markets. Then you have the distribution system operators, or DSOs, which you can generally think of as being the utility companies delivering power from the transmission grid through the distribution grid to end customers. Then you have the distributed energy resources, or DERs, which is a catch-all term for everything from rooftop solar systems to demand response resources like smart buildings to electric vehicles and storage systems, and so on, to various distributed resources and their communication and control systems. Another key acronym here is Locational Marginal Pricing, or LMP, which is a way of defining the price of a resource at a particular point on the transmission grid, or more specifically, a way for wholesale electric energy prices to reflect the value of energy at different locations, accounting for the patterns of load generation and the physical limits of the transmission system. Then you have the Transmission Distribution Interface, or TD Interface, which is where a distribution grid connects to the transmission grid. Now, there are many more characters, and just knowing their names won't really help you follow this complex tale very much anyway, but hopefully that's enough to at least allow you to follow along. So, without further introduction, let's bring Lorenzo into the conversation and learn a bit more about his vision for the grid. Welcome, Lorenzo, to the Energy Transition Show. Well, thank you very much, Chris, and I look forward to our conversation. Great. So, you have published so much and offered so many interesting views of the grid, both present and future, that it's sort of hard to know where to start with your material. But I think I'd like to start with an interesting little thought experiment that you published in Fortnightly Magazine in May last year, which we'll link to in the show notes. And in that, you look back from the year 2050 to the year 2015 and wonder why the integrated, decentralized electric system paradigm, which had become dominant by 2030, was so hard to see coming in 2015. So before we really geek out and get into the nuts and bolts of your vision, I think it would be helpful to start there. In general terms, what is this evolution that you see commencing and, and what is the integrated decentralized electric system paradigm? I think where I would start is by pointing out that for many decades, the electric power system has operated under a a structure which featured large central station power plants. These are the, the big plants anywhere from 50, 100 megawatts in capacity up to even thousands of megawatts for large nuclear or fossil fuel plants. And the system was designed and has operated such that these large plants, usually in locations that are not close to population centers, produce energy, it moves over the high-voltage grid, and then from there out along the distribution systems to customers in one direction. It's flowing from the center out to the edges of the grid to the end-use customers. What is happening in the last few years and what I see as growing ever bigger as time goes on is that that one-way power flow from the center out to the customers is no longer going to be the dominant way that electricity is moved and transacted, largely because of technological change, change on the awareness of customers and the interests of customers in having more control over both how they use energy and the impact of their energy use on the system and on the earth. 
and the technological developments that have made it cheaper to have more powerful local small-scale resources that provide energy. So we're seeing, instead of this big central station paradigm, one in which small-scale, local, distributed, or decentralized resources now can be the foundation of energy supply, can be customized to the needs of individual customers, users, whether they be commercial, industrial, residential, government, agricultural, and can also be customized to the locale in which these entities reside. In other words, different climate zones, different state economic and regulatory frameworks, different state environmental policies, and so on. What that means for the grid, however, is that we need to rethink how it all works because we really had it down. We knew how to operate a system based on centralized power plants and one-way power flow. Now we have to think, well, if we don't have this one-way power flow anymore, instead, devices at the ends are putting power onto the grid and power flows are switching directions. And factors that we thought would be stable from one moment to the next are showing a lot greater volatility and variability how do we operate in that regime? What kinds of communications do we need? What kinds of operating procedures, sensing devices, information sharing, and how does the change how we plan the infrastructure of the system? Essentially, this revolution to the small-scale, local, decentralized, and renewable resources is really affecting every aspect of how the electric power system is operated. Great. That's the perfect transition because I next wanted to talk about your new paper with Paul DiMartini and Jeffrey Taft titled Two Visions of a Transactive Electric System. And we'll link to that in the show notes as well. In that paper, you remind industry futurists, and I suppose I am one, you take us to task suggesting that we might be getting ahead of ourselves with all this talk about integrating a large proportion of DERs and redesigning markets and utility business models and regulatory frameworks to accommodate them. And then instead, we need to start thinking about the operational side of things, how the grid can actually work from the retail customer all the way up to the balancing authorities. And you outline two distinct visions here, which I'll just take a quick minute to introduce before we get into the pros and cons of each one. So the first architecture you call a grand central optimization. And in this architecture, a TSO controls and optimizes a complete centralized system on which it has total visibility from the top to the bottom and on which it may also operate wholesale markets as an independent system operator ISO or a regional transmission organization, RTO. And this vision would basically be an extension of the system we have today. Then there is the second, and in some ways the opposite vision, which is decentralized, where, as you put it, the optimization at any given layer only requires visibility to the interface points with the next layers above and below. And in this paradigm, the TSO would only see a single virtual resource at the TD interface and would not have visibility below that level. So let's start there. Remind us what these layers are and what you mean by optimization at a given layer. Okay. If you don't mind, I'd like to back up just a step because sure. I think it's worth putting a, a little more context about the industry and how things change. And you started out by noting that I was taking industry futurists to task in a sense. And that, that task may be best epitomized by the famous economist joke that has as its punchline, 
assume we have a can opener. Right. I'm sure everyone <laughs> is familiar with that one, right? Right. So my point is that because the change that I just described to this decentralized structure is really so dramatic and affecting every aspect of the industry, there really is a tendency to try to address all the issues at once. And parties who are interested in regulatory structure focus on the regulation, and parties who are interested in markets focus on the markets, and parties who want to develop resources focus on the business cases. How are they going to earn revenues for their products and services and so on? And it's natural to have those kind of siloed focuses. But what gets overlooked is the fact that the laws of physics are not changing. Electricity is still going to move through wires. That part is not changing. And it can be tempting to develop really slick market designs, regulatory procedures, rate structures, and so on, and forget about the connection to the physical system on which it all has to work. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, electricity is a large-scale, complex system that obeys the laws of physics. And if our policies or our market designs or our regulatory frameworks forget about that connection, then you have problems because the markets need to come up with results that say, oh, I'm going to move energy from point A to point B. The underlying physical system has to be able to accommodate that. So that's why I'm taking the emphasis and with the colleagues I'm working with, who you mentioned, Paul Martini and Jeffrey Taft, we've been really trying to focus our discussion and our papers on the actual operation of a physical, complex, large-scale system and start from there. Let the market design come out of the physical requirements for reliable operation and let the rate structures come out of that. Let all these other things build upon having a solid operational framework. So when I get into those two visions that you just summarized, which was very good summary, those really are asking the question, how is this physical system, this ultra-large scale complex system that has to obey the laws of physics, how is it gonna work? Because we can come up with the greatest market designs, but if the underlying physical system isn't compatible with it, then it's not going to work very well. Mm -hmm. And then there's another piece that I need to, to fill in here that I think will be helpful for listeners. You went through the acronyms at the beginning between TSO, Transmission System Operator, ISO, Independent System Operator, RTO, Regional Transmission Organization. All of these are entities that are concerned with the high-voltage transmission system. In contrast, you get to DSO, Distribution System Operator, or the Distribution Utility, and the DER, the Distributed Resources that are connected to the Distribution System. That's another entity. And typically, the entity who's running the transmission grid is a separate entity from the entity who's running the distribution system. Even in a large, vertically integrated utility, where the utility owns transmission and distribution and power plants and all those things, the departments are typically separate and don't really talk to each other very much. And in the old world where power was just flowing one way, they didn't need to and it didn't matter a whole lot. In the new world, it will matter a whole lot. And so starting to create new relationships between how do the people who run the transmission grid interact with the people who run the distribution system 
that interaction now is a crucial focal point of the redesign of the whole system that we need to think about. And so that's why I was focusing on that, and that's what you captured in the acronym of the Transmission Distribution Interface or the, the TD Interface. Because there are separate entities on both sides of that interface and because traditionally there's not been a whole lot of emphasis on coordination between them, now there needs to be. And so we need to think about designing how that interface is going to work in the future. Gotcha. Okay. So when you talk about these different layers, are, are we just talking about sort of the high voltage layer and sort of the low voltage layer? Or are you looking at more layers than that in this layer cake? Well, we can start there. I think that's the most fundamental layering that we need to talk about. Okay. And so probably the best way to get into that is to think about the fact that something which is a large complex system has mechanisms that coordinate the activities of everything that's part of that system. So on the transmission system, there are large generating plants. In California, we have hundreds of them, seven, eight hundred of different sizes at different locations. And there are points, these TD interfaces, where there are lines leading out, emanating towards the end-use consumers. Somehow, that whole system has to operate in balance in what we call real time. Instantaneously, supply and demand have to be in balance. Because if they get out of balance, then you start creating operational problems on the grid. Everyone's aware, for example, that AC current runs at 60 cycles. Well, if you get an imbalance such that you have excess supply and not enough demand, it starts to push that frequency up. And there's a little tolerance with which it can move up and down, and it's not a problem, but you get outside the tolerance and you start to have operational problems. The other direction, if demand starts to exceed supply, then the frequency starts to go down, which is another kind of problem. So it's important then for the operator of that system to have procedures in place, control mechanisms, sensing devices, etc., that enable visibility into what's going on and mechanisms to detect little perturbations and make adjustments in the operation, some of them through human intervention and some of them through automatic controls that will keep the system in balance and avoid any kind of significant disruption. Mm -hmm. Now, those kinds of systems are different on transmission, which is high voltage, which is an integrated network, which means the lines all crisscross and interconnect in different ways. As compared to the distribution system, where the lines tend to be what we call radial. The line comes out from the TD interface, and it just goes out in a straight line out to customers, and you have more of these radial lines coming out. And also, they're at lower voltage. So a lot of the operational procedures, a lot of the response times in which you need to address a perturbation are very different. So now we get to the point where these distributed resources that are out on the grid, and that could include rooftop solar, but also two, three, four, five megawatt solar farms that are like community installations or on the tops of warehouses or in industrial parks or subdivisions. They could be large battery installations 
that are within, say, an industrial park or a university campus or a major medical center. And we could have vehicle charging stations that are workplace stations where you might have facilities to charge 50 automobiles or a fleet of government vehicles. So you now have installations that can be of significant size, not the huge power plants that you find on the transmission grid, but of enough size on the distribution system that they have a real impact on how that system is operating. So the question is, how can those devices out on the distribution grid essentially not only use the grid to provide what they need, but also provide services back to the grid? How can they engage in transactions? If I have a battery facility and it can discharge energy to help relieve peak load on the system, well, that device can now participate in the market and actually provide services and earn a revenue stream from doing that. Or a aggregations, say, of 500 electric vehicle charging stations could provide a service by having fast response time frequency regulations so that if the frequency changes a little bit, it responds quickly. That's a service that helps out the grid and it can earn revenues from that. But that means then we need a control system that's going to be able to tell those devices what to do, be able to monitor what they're doing, be able to see what is needed at different locations on the grid, et cetera. So this is part of the system redesign that I was talking about. So that kind of coordination that you're talking about there, that's what you mean by sort of optimization within a given layer? Yeah, I think that's a good way to think about that. It's being able to have a view of all the facilities that are connected and be able to utilize them in the best possible way to meet the needs of all the customers who are depending on the grid and also to maintain reliable operation and be able to respond to disturbances. That's, in a sense, what the optimization is all about. So the last thing I was going to say, just to tie back to the two visions that you started out your question with, would be to say the two ways of looking at this are, do we want a future system where the transmission operator who operates the high-voltage grid essentially extends its optimization or its control or its management of the system all the way down to these distributed devices and sees all of them and is making decisions about which ones to use and how to use them for the entire system as a whole. That's the grand central optimization paradigm that I called in paper. Or, as an alternative, create a, a really clear boundary at the TD interface and say the transmission system operator is only concerned with what's going on above that boundary and what's going on across that boundary. And below that, the distribution system operator is now the entity who's in charge of managing all of the coordination and optimizing at the local level in that area. And that would be a very different structural arrangement in terms of the companies that are doing things and what their responsibilities are, and also the regulatory frameworks. In other words, the relationship between federal regulation, which governs high-voltage transmission and wholesale markets, versus local or state regulation that governs distribution and retail markets.
So all of these things are part of the evolutionary change process. But I think the question that I wanted to pose with that paper was to say, let's think about which of these futures is more desirable from an operational perspective. Which one will give us a more stable system, a more reliable system, and ultimately a more efficient system that is more secure against possible disturbances and achieves the bigger goals of the society, which include, you know, equity and reduced greenhouse gas emissions, cleaner energy, and so on. Right. And I do want to get into some of those questions, but I just wanted to sort of get the architectural vision clear for our listeners who may or may not have, have read your paper. So, so just to sort of try to rephrase this a little bit, you say that the grand central optimization could actually have as much DER participating in it as any other design on both the customer and the utility side of the meter, individually or in aggregations, including markets for unbundled services that DER can provide and peer-to-peer transactions. So, so in either architecture, we could enable all of this DER growth. But the TSO would see the DER either as a single resource located at the TD substation in what you call the minimal DSO model, or it would be able to see the DER all the way down to the actual locations on the distribution circuits in the total ISO model. So in the minimal DSO model, for example, the TSO might see a thousand EVs connected to the grid as a single resource, whereas in the total ISO model, it would know the physical address of every electric car plugged into the grid. Am I on the right track so far? I think I need to correct that a little bit. Okay. The total DSO is the one in which the ISO sees a single resource at the substation. Okay. And the DSO is managing everything below it. That's the layered version. Okay, okay. In the minimal DSO, that's where the ISO is seeing thousands and thousands of distributed resources. And the DSO's role, I call it minimal because it's playing a coordination function but it's not really making any decisions about optimizing the resources and and what services they can provide and so on. Okay. Then moving over to this layered decentralized optimization, the, the other architecture, instead of having all of these DER bidding directly into the wholesale market and being dispatched by the ISO, a DSO would aggregate all the DER in a local distribution area, another lovely acronym here, LDA, located below a single TD interface substation or LMP pricing node. So here, the total DSO would bid all of the DER under its control into the wholesale market at the TD interface as a single bid. And the TSO would only need to concern itself with balancing the interchange between TD interfaces without needing to know all the detail going on below that level. And a DSO would have the responsibility for balancing supply and demand from the distribution level all the way up to the LDA. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Okay, so now with all that out of the way, whew, I tell you, Lorenzo, I'm really struggling to mentally track all this stuff. I, I hope our listeners are not struggling as much as I am. For the three people in the world who are still listening, let's discuss the pros and cons. So you say that the second architecture, the layered decentralized optimization, if your objective is to have a high penetration of DER, that's the preferable architecture. And that's because of two important issues that you talk about, tier bypassing and scalability. So should we elaborate on those a little bit? Sure. Those are examples, but I think behind them all, 
is the question of what's going to be a more stable system from an operational perspective. And stable, in a sense, means the ability to maintain reliable operation in the face of different kinds of disturbances. And the layered is really much stronger in that regard. The analogy that I like to use is to think about natural ecosystems and biological models. And I'd use the example of, say, a cell in your body, which is an example of what I would call the layered decomposition. You know, each cell has to look out for what's going on inside its cell membrane. It is maintaining homeostasis. It's got little energy plants in there and the mitochondria. It's got a membrane through which it interacts with its outside world. But in a sense, it's responsible for its own dynamic equilibrium. Now, at the same time, that cell in your body, maybe it's a cell in your liver. So it's part of your liver. And as such, there's a function that the liver performs that that cell has to contribute. So while it's doing its own thing and maintaining its own stability and health and well-being, it's also contributing to the function of that organ. Similarly, your liver as an organ has to perform what its functional responsibilities are, and yet it has interfaces with other parts of your body. It's getting information from your nervous system, from your bloodstream, from your endocrine system, and so on. And part of its responsibility is that it has a function within the complex structure that's your body that it needs to perform. So it's looking out for its own health and well-being in a sense, but it still is got a function in the greater whole. Take that another step forward. You know, you're an individual, I'm an individual, and yet we have a place inside our families, inside the neighborhoods that we live in and our circle of friends and relatives, in the places where we work and our relationships with our coworkers. So we need to look out for ourselves, for our own health and well-being, and at the same time, the dynamics of our interrelations within our different overlapping social networks is also a crucial part of our health and well-being. And then you can take that up any level you want. We're part of, say, a city, and we participate in the city government more or less. We vote in elections. We respond to laws. We follow traffic lights when they give us signals on the road about what to do. So there is this kind of layering that happens where there's, in a sense, an optimization happening at each level. And going back to my body, my brain does not need to see what's going on in every cell. It doesn't need that information because it says, cell, you take care of yourself and stay healthy. I'm sending general instructions for what I want your liver to do. So it's that kind of thing that we can imagine for the power grid. You can take a building, and it's not too far in the future that it will be very cheap for a house to have rooftop solar, electric vehicle charging station, perhaps thermal storage where it's chilling water during the day when energy is cheap for use later on for air conditioning or battery storage and electronic control systems that control the devices in your house so that your house becomes a little energy system on its own that does a lot for itself because with solar panels it's generating electricity and with batteries it's storing it and providing for your own needs and yet that house or a smart building, a commercial building, can be part of a larger structure 
which is also optimizing at the next level up. The commercial building might be part of a commercial or industrial park, or it might be part of a major medical center or a university campus. The house may be part of a subdivision of 500 houses that has also some community solar and community storage and the electronic control systems that enable that subdivision to operate as an electrical unit. And then similarly, that electrical unit, the subdivision or the industrial park can be part of the next layer up, which is the local distribution area that the utility operates that may have, you know, 5,000 customers and a whole lot of commercial buildings and different kinds of merchant renewable power plants and batteries and so on. And it's operating that system. The key thing is that when a smart building is embedded in a microgrid, the microgrid knows the buildings there, but it doesn't have to know everything that's inside that building. It just needs to see what's the interface, what's my interaction with that building. Similarly, the DSO or the distribution utility that's managing that local distribution area doesn't need to see what's inside the microgrid. It just needs to know that it's got an interface with the microgrid and we have rules for how we coordinate around that interface. But meanwhile, underneath it, inside the microgrid, they're taking care of business for themselves in their own way. So you bring that up now to the level of the ISO and the transmission system and that interface with the distribution grid. The ISO doesn't need to see what's going on inside that local distribution area, but it knows that it's got a relationship with the distribution utility that's maintaining a certain stability and certain protocols for managing the flows across that interface. So this is what we call scalable, that the same concept of a smaller unit doing something, managing its interface with the next larger unit up, can scale at different levels as the technology enables us to do that. And it's that same scalability that I would say mimics what we see in biological systems, in ecosystems. And on that basis, it's a very resilient system. You know, right now there's a lot of discussion, for example, about cybersecurity or physical security, threats to the grid, or, or even climate events, weather events like big hurricanes that take out portions of the grid. And you have huge areas that don't have electricity for perhaps weeks at a time. Well, with this scalable system, each of these smaller units could disconnect and be a self-contained power system that could operate for a day or two days or perhaps even weeks. And the possibility of taking out a huge area of the grid through one of these major disturbances becomes really diminished once you have this scalable structure. It's really interesting that, that you describe it that way because it really kind of brought to mind for me a fractal, you know, a structure that's yeah. replicated over and over from a tiny scale all the way up to a large scale. It also made me think actually back to my days as a software engineer, because when I first started coding, we were all using procedural coding. That's what we were taught. And then eventually we moved to object-oriented coding, where you have a self-contained object with well-defined interfaces, so you can communicate with our objects, but you don't really need to know what's going on inside of each of those objects. And you don't need a master procedure that understands the functioning of the whole system. You just have to have enough coordination that the objects can work together. Are those also apt metaphors? Yeah, I think that's a very good analogy. Okay. You know? In terms of the whole system, this is where 
the architecture comes in because, you know, as we're thinking about this transformation that's happening in the industry, we want to take an architectural perspective. In other words, let's look at the whole system all the way from the level of the Western interconnection. And, you know, all the Western states and with parts of Canada and Mexico are all part of one interconnected grid. And that whole system, all the way down to all of the end-use customers, it's one really physically interconnected electrical system. Let's look at that and then start to think about the architecture of the operational structure, the coordination and control structure, in a way that maximizes the stability and efficiency of that whole system. So we're looking at it from a design perspective as a whole system, but then we're creating these units at different levels and these layers at different levels such that the control and the management of variability and volatility can be decentralized at different levels in the way that makes the most sense for the local needs. So your paper moves on to discussing how grid power futurists are thinking about applying the locational marginal pricing concept to the distribution grid instead of just the transmission grid, a.k.a. the LMP plus D, where D is for distribution. And we're thinking about this because it offers a way to unbundle the services that DER can provide where and when they exist on the distribution grids. And this is something that we've talked about in previous episodes about how we really need to unbundle some of these things so that, for example, storage can get properly valued for all the different services that it can provide on the grid. So what are some of the issues wrapped up in this question? I think the first one is that the distribution utilities are not accustomed to thinking of devices on the distribution system as being able to provide services to them. They largely view the interconnections just as they view customers. They are entities that are receiving service. Mm -hmm. The grid is providing a service. They're delivering electricity, the traditional one-way electricity flow. It comes off the big power plants. We deliver it to the customers. And they are then essentially the recipients of the grid services. It's been, I think, just kind of an automatic response, which makes perfect sense that as rooftop solar has been coming along and electric vehicles and charging stations to continue to see these as facilities or devices that are taking service from the grid. And the change in thinking that's beginning now to take hold is to realize that many of these devices at the edges of the grid can provide service as the behavior of distributed resources raises new operational challenges much of it having to do with volatility of, say, voltage and frequency, some of the devices on there could be under the control of the distribution utility and can help manage the operational challenges. And so now we create new kinds of relationships where the distributed resources, instead of just taking the service of the grid, they're now providing a service that they can get compensated for, and the distribution utility sees, well, I've got these five, six, ten different entities around on the grid that I can call upon that can help me manage voltage fluctuations or frequency fluctuations or power quality or phase balancing. These are just different aspects of the operational things that distribution utilities have to deal with. But the distributed resources now become a source of service to do that. So the first step after recognizing that those services are a possibility is to actually define what the services are. And this is where we're at an early stage, I think, 
in the industry. Define what are the services that we want distributed resources to provide and define them in a pretty specific manner. In other words, what are the performance characteristics that this resource needs to have? It needs to respond in four seconds, say, or it needs to receive a signal and do something in response to that signal. It needs to be available 24 hours a day, whatever. But to start to spell out the performance requirements for each service and then to begin to think about what is the value of that service, how would the utility procure the service, how would it compensate for the service. So these are all, I think, at a very early stage of consideration, the distribution resources plan proceeding in California under the California Public Utilities Commission is taking up this topic, but it's still at a pretty early phase. The other thing that I would mention that was in the paper we've been talking about is this notion of markets versus controls. And the simple way of thinking about markets and controls is that when you have a market, there are prices in which, say, a supplier is willing to sell something and a buyer is willing to buy something, but it's voluntary. The price for the same price some suppliers may be willing to supply and some buyers may be willing to buy and others may not. It's very much a voluntary decision. And on any given day or any given moment, somebody who bought at that price yesterday might not buy at that same price today. So it has this voluntary aspect to it. And markets on the electricity system have a lot of that aspect to it as well. Controls, on the other hand, are things that are automated. They are hardwired so that a certain signal goes out and the device that receives that signal is going to do very specific action in response to that signal, assuming that the system works, of course, with a malfunction that all bets are off. But assuming that it works the way is intended, there isn't that voluntary aspect in it. When you get to managing a complex system that is physically based, an electrical system, then you can't rely completely on one or the other. Well, let me modify that a little bit. You probably could rely on a complete control system, but that may not be the most desirable way to do things. As we found with electricity, the idea in the 1990s to create markets in the transmission system for wholesale trading of electricity, we had a more purely controlled type of system with the utilities that made all the decisions about what resources they were going to dispatch, what resources they were going to procure. They built a lot of their own resources, and the regulators oversaw that. But starting in the 80s and then moving with restructuring in the 90s, it was realized that getting competition in here, getting investment coming from profit-seeking investors rather than just the utilities was going to be economically beneficial. So let's create competitive markets. So in many ways, those wholesale markets have been very successful and they've been functioning well for 20-some years now. You take the ISOs in the East, New York, New England, PJM, Midwest, California, those wholesale markets work pretty well. As we get down into the distribution system, there's a tendency to say, well, let's just do markets there too. It's markets all the way down because they've clearly shown themselves to be good. And part of what I wanted to do in the paper was just offer a cautionary note to that, that there are limits to how well markets can operate when you get into control of physical systems. 
because there are certain things that happen on very short time frames where that voluntary aspect of a market response may not get you what you want. And you also point out that the market approach, the LMP plus D, won't necessarily support the kind of long-term capital commitment that's necessary when you're trying to build out a high DER system. Well, that's true as well. And I think we've seen that in the wholesale markets as well, that locational prices are very good for providing price signals in the short term, day ahead, hour ahead, mm -hmm. real time, to get generation units and demand response, say, to operate in a way that's compatible with the needs of the grid. But what we're seeing in most places is that those spot prices aren't necessarily sufficient to stimulate investment because they fluctuate too much. You know, you need more longer-term contracts that provide price certainty yeah. that make investment in large infrastructure more bankable. So there is that aspect as well, but that's not particularly new to just the distribution system. I think the part that's new to the distribution system is that we're operating more and more on very short time frames, short response times and short refresh times of the parameters that characterize the operation so that we need controls that can operate really quickly in those short response times. So what I, I and my co-authors started to sketch out in that paper is the notion that what we will need is certain controls that can act very fast, but they can be controls that are part of integrated market-control structures. And the example I like to give is a four-second regulation service that we have on the transmission grid. So regulation service gets a four-second signal every four seconds from a centralized system that's looking at frequency and is sending out signal to generating plants every four seconds to very slightly adjust their output levels so that they're maintaining this dynamic supply and demand balance. Now, the market part of that is that not every generator on the grid has to follow those signals. We just need a certain amount of it so that we have a sufficient amount to deal with the expected fluctuations that we are going to have to deal with. That can be really well estimated statistically. So now we go out a day ahead of time and we say, well, tomorrow for this hour, we need 300 megawatts of capacity that is able to be hooked up to this four-second response and perform accordingly. Well, the market part of that is that day-ahead solicitation, and we do that in the ISO's market in the day-ahead market time frame. We put in a constraint that says, for this hour, buy 300 megawatts of regulation up service, and that is generators that can move in the upward direction in response to these signals. That's a market to procure those 300 megawatts. We have thousands of megawatts of generation that's on the grid, and maybe four, five, six, eight hundred of it might be capable. So we look at who wants to offer to sell it to us, and it's the market that procures the megawatts of capacity that will provide the service. Once they sell us that service, they get paid for providing the capacity, but then in order to deliver the service, they're hooked up to an automatic control system. They don't have a choice once they're on that 
automatic generation control and they're getting that four second signal they don't think about well do i want to respond right now or not maybe i don't feel like it or what's the price is the price high enough all of that is over with once they sold us the capacity in the day ahead market now in real time it's simply a control they get a signal they respond accordingly so that's an example i think for folks familiar with grid operations of a service that's pretty well known but you can characterize it as a market control structure because it's got both a market aspect to it and a control aspect to it. When it gets to real-time operation, it's that control aspect that's governing the behavior. Right. And so then as we move toward this more layered decentralized architecture, you say that we're going to have to sort of start leaving that sort of control market behind, as you were just describing, and move toward more of a transactive energy concept. Am I right so far? Well, no, I wouldn't say we're leaving it behind. And in fact, I think the caution that I would raise, so this concept of transactive energy, which is being talked about very widely, has been for a number of years in the industry, based on the idea that these distributed resources out at the edges of the grid can engage in all kinds of transactions on the system with each other or with the distribution company or with the ISO and so on. But I believe that we cannot abandon the need for a certain amount of control structures in place to maintain grid reliability. Now, here's where I think that we would differ probably with some of the other people who are engaged in the industry discussions. I've heard expressed the concept that if we get price signals correct, we can rely on transactive markets to deliver everything we need to maintain reliable operation. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think that's perhaps theoretically interesting, conceptually interesting, but in fact, I don't know that systems as complex as the power system can forego control structures where you're actually sending signals and things respond automatically to those signals because we need that predictability, not in a statistical sense, but in a very precise sense at the location where it's needed. So, you know, I think the notion that we can abandon centralized dispatch, centralized optimization completely, centralized control structures, to me that doesn't seem very feasible and I kind of view that as going too far in a sense. But that doesn't necessarily foreclose the opportunities for distributed resources to engage in transactions and earn revenues from that and provide services. I think all those things are possible, but it's complemented by the architecture of a control system that's going to make sure reliability is maintained in these really short time frame response times that are needed to respond to perturbations. So you are clearly making the point that we really need to understand our policy objectives here and be clear-eyed about the implications of the architectural choices we make. If we go too far toward this transactive energy concept, for example, I mean, what could go wrong? Well, you know, I don't want to say that I'm rejecting the transactive energy concept. I think it's just a matter of maintaining the complementarity with the centralized control in a layered sense. I'm not saying, you know, the ISO controls everything either. It's just recognizing that these are all different parts of the system that play a role, just like individual cells in the body do their own thing. 
we wouldn't expect individual cells to do the right thing to keep our body alive in the absence of a central nervous system and a circulatory system and, you know, an endocrine system that all have to work together. So you have these centralized systems that are sending instructions that are moving information from one point to another, and you still have your liver doing what it's supposed to do as a liver and your heart doing what it's supposed to do. So it's really, the system is comprised of all of these things and they all have roles. It's just not to go to one complete extreme or the other. Mm -hmm. So how do we get from the architecture that we have today more toward this layered decentralized grid of the future? I mean, I, I sort of wonder, like, what are the mechanics of, of getting from here to there? And will the common sort of integrated resource planning that utilities are doing today, will that get us there? No, not by itself. I think it requires more than that, which is a lot of the reason why we're writing these papers. I think the first step is to begin to envision a future that is like along the lines of what I described. That is, these decentralized systems at different layers. We see some examples of them in existence today. We see smart buildings. Some of them exist. We see campuses that have become microgrids. They exist today. We see communities that are local jurisdictions that are starting to develop diverse resources and control systems that optimize the use of those resources. There's experiments going on to demonstrate that aspect of it. So that's sort of the first step. For utilities, distribution utilities and state regulators, in many states, the expansion of distributed resources is moving very slowly at a very preliminary stage. So they're looking at it and they, they go, well, why do I need to worry about that? You know, there's really nothing happening here. Right. And maybe there isn't much happening just yet. But I think we will see with the declining costs and increasing power of small-scale distributed resources and the electronics that enable automation and, and decentralized controls, these things will start to grow elsewhere. So part of what the distribution utilities and their regulators need to be asking is, how do we start to modernize the distribution grid to be able to sustain this more decentralized future? What do we do first? So think about a system that was designed for one-way power flows from the transmission system out to the customers, now it's going to have devices all over the place that will change the direction of power flows and change some of the operating requirements. Let's start to, number one, really have good sensor information about what's happening at various places of the grid. My understanding is that in most places, distribution utilities don't really have good information that you might call situational awareness. What is the status of all of the feeders and substations that are part of the local distribution area? So a starting place is to just think about that. What would we need to put in place as a distribution operator in order to have a really good up-to-date instantaneous snapshot every minute or every five minutes? And in some critical locations, maybe every few seconds as to what's happening on the grid. And then secondly, if we want to encourage this transition to uh, more decentralized options, recognizing some of that is going to be driven from the bottom up anyway. So I think this is another mind shift that 
especially policymakers and regulators need to realize we're used to thinking about policies being made at the top and filtering down. And we're in a situation where a lot of the driving force for change is going to be from the bottom up. Customers are simply going to adopt things. There's this autonomous expansion of distributed resources that happens through individual customers making decisions. And I'm using customer in a big sense. A customer could be a residence. It could be a commercial building. It could be a campus. It could be a municipality that wants to meet its climate action plan Mm -hmm. or that wants to customize resources and and do its own energy efficiency program to assist a low-income community. And, you know, on the subject of municipalities, I think it's worth mentioning that the distributed resources and the electronics and control systems that go with them are enabling new ways of thinking about municipal services so that, you know, we're used to having a department of water supply and a department of wastewater treatment and a department of solid waste management and a department of transportation that deals with local transportation. Well, how do we view these things? How can we begin to view these things as comprising a whole system where municipal services utilize the electricity grid, but it's integrated with how we do water supply and how we do wastewater treatment, and it's extracting energy value from the waste stream and extracting nutrient value that then becomes fertilizer for local gardens and agriculture. And in many ways, these kinds of convergences of services and whole system thinking, I think, will be tremendously beneficial for cities and counties that continually struggle with budget problems and can't afford to do everything, partially because an awful lot of what they do do is wasted or is uncoordinated or siloed. Yeah, and I've thought a lot about that because, you know, it really sort of brings up this whole concept that the world is just moving faster than the sort of regulatory paradigms that we've attached to them. And it really makes me think about the need for regulatory reform in particular. In order to value the services of DERs more completely and accurately, and to maximize that value and to eliminate some of the waste that we're talking about, we really need a whole variety of uh, regulatory reforms, it seems to me. And on this show, we've talked about how storage is disadvantaged, as I mentioned earlier, relative to thermal generators because the services that it provides can't be properly valued in an unbundled fashion on the wholesale grid. And we've talked about how wholesale prices fall as more generation with zero marginal cost comes onto the grid and rate design probably has to change in order to keep wind and solar from destroying their own value as they take over the generation role on the grid. I look at all of the issues at the regulatory level and I just sometimes wonder if it wouldn't be better to just get rid of concepts like wholesale and retail and qualifying facility and just shake off the whole calcified conceptual framework of grid power markets and start over with new goals and new architectures designed for the kinds of equipment that weren't really even a glimmer in anyone's eye when the current architecture was developed. Or maybe we need to find a path from here to there incrementally. I, I really don't know. I mean, what kinds of regulatory reforms do you think are going to be needed to support the kind of evolution that you're talking about here? Well, I think you're on the right track. I definitely agree with that. There are lots of regulatory changes that are needed 
I tend to shy away from the idea of throwing everything out and starting over because when you do that, then everybody's going to argue about what the new thing is and, and it could get infinitely bogged down. Hmm. So I try to look for ways that we can make significant changes that move us in the right direction. One thing comes to mind, I'll, I'll mention a couple of things that I've been thinking about that seem perhaps doable within the current framework. One of them is is bringing local jurisdictions, local government agencies fully into the conversation. When we have discussions in the industry about the power system, it's, you know, the ISO, the distribution utilities, the state regulators, the federal regulators, the big power companies, the DER developers, all of these enterprises and entities that have had traditional roles, and then the end-use customer at the bottom, which is an individual customer. Well, what is missing from that is groups of customers, communities of customers, local jurisdictions, local agencies that do water supply, the entities that are really grappling with climate change, with environmental impacts, with budget constraints, with real things on the ground where they care about their environmental footprint. The cities and counties have climate action plans. They care about collecting the energy value out of their waste stream and collecting the nutrient value out of their waste stream and materials because to develop a really sustainable way of living on the earth as humans we not only need to change how we do energy we need to change how we do waste we can't just keep throwing stuff away because an awful lot of what we throw away is perfectly usable in fact i heard a really cool song the other day that your friends on the Extra Environmentalists used as a tune in one of their podcasts where the refrain said, there's no such thing as waste, there's just stuff in the wrong place. <laughs> yeah, or as the old saying goes, you can't throw anything away because there is no away. Right. And we don't need to because there's value there. Yeah. So I think part of what needs to happen then is in all of these industry discussions, let's find ways to bring cities and counties into that discussion, the local jurisdictions, the uh, local government associations, and make them real players in this, recognizing that this is a bottom-up change, that some real innovation is happening at the local level, and let it be part of this conversation. So that's one thing that I think could be done simply by thinking bigger about who the customers are yeah. and who the agents of change are. And taking a whole system approach, yeah. Yeah, so the second thing I would say is that we have a concept of electricity which is excessively focused on the commodity. And, you know, go back to the 90s, we're creating wholesale markets, and commodity, commodity, commodity was thrown around as the buzzword. And we were making analogies to commodity markets and, you know, the trading of uh, wholesale megawatt hours, you know, so it was all very much a commodity basis. Now, in the old paradigm where you have big central station generators and you have customers out at the end, well, yeah, it's basically a commodity that's flowing from one place out to the other. But once you start getting into high volumes of distributed resources, there are a couple of different things to think about. One of them is the services are more important than the commodity. 
And I mean, we've known this for a long time when all the energy efficiency discussions going back into the 70s and 80s recognized that, oh, yes, customers don't really care about kilowatt hours. They care about comfort and, and other services they get. Yeah. But I think that needs to take on new meaning now. It really needs to expand because just take the idea of local resilience. If you're creating a local power system and through this layered structure, that power system, if there's a disturbance on the grid, they can disconnect and they have power in that local area. Well, what's the commodity value of that? It's not measurable in terms of a commodity. It's really measured in terms of the value of being able to have continuous operation and to maintain not just electricity kilowatt hours that flow to customers, but all of the integrated systems that depend on it, which may be your water supply and your wastewater treatment and so on. Right. So start thinking about services instead of commodities. And then a complement to that, when you move on to the system, that right now at the ISO even and on the distribution system, we're looking at small time intervals every five minutes. How much does this generator produce in five minutes? How much does this local load takeout point, load node, consume in five minutes? And we're looking at essentially the commodity that's flowing one way or the other in a small time interval. And then we charge based on that. All of our charges are essentially based on that. Even when you get down to the retail level, we're looking at, okay, how many kilowatt hours did you consume in a month or in an hour or in a certain time period? So... As we move into a more renewable and distributed future, and I'm saying both because we do have large-scale renewables on the grid. We have big central station solar farms and wind farms. Those will continue to exist, but they bring a different characteristic to the grid. They bring a certain kind of volatility that makes them more difficult to manage operationally because what they're doing is dependent on how much wind is blowing, how much sun is shining, whether there's clouds, etc. Mm -hmm. And then the same volatility is happening at the distribution end even more so because now you've got vehicles and sometimes they're charging and plugged in and sometimes they're not plugged in and sometimes they could be discharging when they're plugged in. And then you have microgrids that are doing their own behavior and you have customers, some have just plain rooftop solar, others may have rooftop solar plus a battery. So what I'm getting at is instead of just how many kilowatt hours are being consumed or produced in an interval, let's start looking at the volatility impact of all of the things that are connected to the grid and look at volatility as a driver of the cost of providing reliable service. At the transmission system, part of providing reliable transmission grid is being able to manage volatility and that has a cost because we have to procure resources that are very responsive, that can ramp over a couple of hours, say, to meet a severe changes if you lose a whole bunch of solar due to clouds coming over. And similarly, on the distribution level, there's a lot more volatility. The distribution company is going to have costs associated with managing the volatility in the form of, say, paying certain resources to be able to operate on command to maintain voltage, frequency, etc. Right. So let's think about if a resource is attached somewhere to the system, Part of what it's going to pay for distribution service 
is a measure of its impact on volatility. If it adds volatility to the grid, it pays more for service. Same thing on the transmission system. If a facility adds more volatility to the grid, it should pay more service because it's, that's a cost causation model. It's driving a cost of managing volatility. Similarly, resources that can help manage volatility get paid for providing the service of managing volatility. So that now the cost of transmission and distribution service are not just attached to the commodity, but are looking intertemporally. Not what did I do in this five-minute interval, but let's look at a sequence of 12 five-minute intervals and look at the variance of what your consumption or production was, or maybe the variance of your voltage over those series of intervals. That's a measure of volatility. And now, if you're very volatile and you're exporting that volatility onto the system, you're creating a cost that you're going to have to pay for. So that's a new, different way of thinking yeah. about how we're making the rates associated with distribution service and transmission service. Yeah, I can see very clearly how that would lead to really a totally different kind of regulatory paradigm and you know different kinds of rate design and all that. Yeah, and it's not that far-fetched, I think, in terms of where we are. You know, that's not overturning the entire system. That's just introducing a new element. Hmm. So, actually, on, on a very related note, I wanted to ask you if you'd seen this new paper from Christopher Clack and his colleagues at NOAA and the University of Colorado, Future Cost Competitive Electricity Systems and Their Impact on U.S. CO2 Emissions. So they found in this paper that carbon dioxide emissions from the U.S. electricity sector can be reduced by up to 80% relative to 1990 levels without an increase in the levelized cost of electricity, using only current technologies, and without storage if we build more HVDC transmission lines and switch to a national grid architecture instead of remaining with the current regional system. So, so here we are, we're, we're talking about a whole system view of the entire U.S. grid. Do you think that a national grid is even a practical concept here? Well, that's a good question. I haven't really looked into that a lot, so I wouldn't really have an expert opinion on that. I guess when I hear, though, about really ambitious transmission projects, I wonder if the advocates of that have thought about the potential for high penetration of distributed resources, because it seems to me we need to at least consider how cost-effective would such a build-out of transmission be if we move to, say, 50% of electricity consumed as being produced locally. Mm. You know, do we still need all those facilities? Right. And so I would just say that, that as you think about the costs and benefits of the construction of such a system, well, let's build in a scenario that's a very high penetration of distributed resources. Because my sense is that an additional benefit of the localization and the layering structure will be reduced flows on the existing grid, reduced congestion on the existing grid, and as a result, the ability to have higher capacity factors on the existing grid because we're, the distributed resources are also having the effect with storage of smoothing out the load profiles. And, you know, a lot of infrastructure is being driven by peak demand. So if you start to smooth out the load profiles, then you have less drivers of new infrastructure. So, you know, I'd question really... Is that needed if we 
enable this more decentralized structure to move forward. That's a great, great point. So one final question, and I'd like to maybe just get a little more philosophical, maybe a little less technical here. Why do you think it is that decentralized decision-making just seems to work better in complex systems? Well, that is a good, deep philosophical question. <laughs> let, let me shift your question a little bit to talk about human systems, people okay. and community. Okay. Because I feel like a whole lot of the predicament that we're in as a species, has to do with, in a sense, breakdowns of communities and relationships. Hmm. We have an uh, economic system that for 100-some years has been tremendously successful at producing lots of new stuff. But part of the cost of that is this sense of ourselves as individuals that have to have all our own stuff, and the breakdown of communities. Structuring neighborhoods in ways that people hardly ever come out of their houses and get to know each other. Mm. And commuting long distances to work, getting in a car and driving, or getting on public transport and going places. And I think, as I think about a future that I expect to be a lot more volatile in general, whether it's climate disruption, extreme weather events, or just the instability of our economic system, which is also growing increasingly volatile, and our social structures, which are growing increasingly volatile. Look at the quality of some of our national debates that are happening in the presidential campaigns. Right. And a lot of it has nothing to do with the real problems that we're facing. No substance at all, yeah. Yeah, very, very little substance. And as I think about surviving for the future, as I think about my children and my grandchildren and subsequent generations, what I think we really desperately need as people is to rediscover what community means, to begin to come out of our houses, to begin to have gatherings and talk to our neighbors about what's really important, not just about who won the Super Bowl or you know that kind of stuff, but really talk about what is it that we really care about and how can we create resilient communities? In other words, how can we be less dependent on what happens in Washington or what happens in Sacramento? Because in my neighborhood, we're growing some of our own food. We have permaculture plots on some people's yards. We have chicken coops. We have community dinners. And we're talking about stuff. We're creating art projects. We're educating each other. We have little cultural events. We, we don't have to go to the arena with 10,000 or 20,000 people to see a concert. We could, it's not bad, but we also have music happening right in our neighborhood. You know, so to me, <laughs> decentralized is the essence of creating a human culture and a human society that's going to move into a more sustainable 21st century. Oh. That is wonderful. The challenge to that is that we have been indoctrinated to believe that what individuals do don't matter, that we are isolated individuals and have to look out for ourselves, and that policy comes from the top and filters down. And we need to break out of that paradigm and start to realize that we're responsible for the reality that we leave to our children and grandchildren. How do we take that responsibility back? 
And it's not me by myself to do that. You know, it's how do I start having better relations with my neighbors? How do I start creating community resilience? These are the things to me that are really going to make a difference about moving into the future. And decentralized energy systems are just a component of that. You know, it goes back to looking at local communities, cities and counties as integrated whole systems. Well, I mentioned wastewater and water supply and waste management and electricity and local transportation. But let's add to that restorative justice, education, culture, food. How do we bring all of these things together so that we're doing things as a community? And even then economics. You know, one of my favorite people is this architect, Mark Lakeman, in uh, Portland, who who traveled all around the world for about five years back in the 90s, looking at how different communities created and used public space. He was struck by the fact that there's no public space in America where people gather and talk about stuff. You know, we, we make democracy. It seems to be so important to us. But in order to have democracy, people have to get out and talk about issues. They have to have places to gather. They have to have places and venues where they can communicate about stuff that really matters to them. So he said about recreating public space, and it's done very interesting work in Portland. I'd suggest to you and your listeners to check out a 15-minute TED Talk called Badass Democracy on YouTube, and you can see Mark Lakeman tell the story of some aspects of his work. One of the things, though, that he did was create this notion of mapping out a neighborhood, going to all the houses in, say, a five or eight block radius, ten block radius, and what occupations and skills does everybody have, and put those on a map. And you start to realize that people can create local economies by just providing services to each other. You know, that doesn't eliminate going to work and having a job, but maybe it eliminates 20% of what you have to do or 30% because now you have such a diversity of skills and capabilities locally and then you add to that food production in your backyard and things like that and you can start to create local economy that is less dependent on the macro systems and and it's that withdrawing of dependence on the macro systems recreating community creating local resilience that to me is part of the essence of how we survive in, in a more turbulent future and at the same time create a world that's a lot more satisfying because being a consumer and buying stuff is not going to be ever as nearly as satisfying as having really good solid relations with our neighbors. Well, I couldn't agree more. And what a wonderful note to wrap up this amazing conversation. Uh, in the last episode, we we talked about a lot of macro stuff. And I think it's pretty clear that we could all stand to reduce our reliance on the macro. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, Lorenzo, I so much appreciate your time. And it's just always fascinating to talk to you. And I hope our listeners manage to stick it out through the technical stuff for that brilliant little bit at the end there. And uh, I hope we can talk again. Anytime, Chris. I always enjoy talking to you. I definitely, let's continue our conversations in whatever way we can. And I appreciate you having me on the show. And I do hope the listeners, uh, you know, we, we dove into the technical stuff pretty fast. We dove into the deep end of the pool. <laughs> but, um, but I hope that, that it was beneficial and that people get something out of it. But in any event, thank you again for having me on and have a great weekend. 
That was Lorenzo Kristov, a principal of market and infrastructure policy with the California independent system operator, Kaiso. In retrospect, perhaps it wasn't necessary to even introduce all the jargon and acronyms that are used in this incredibly complex subject because Lorenzo has such a beautiful way of communicating the concepts in plain English. But if you decide to look up some of the papers we link to in the show notes, you'll need to understand those things, so maybe it wasn't a waste of time after all. In any case, I hope today's episode helped listeners to understand some of the operational considerations that must be taken into account as we move toward the next generation grid. Lorenzo is, of course, correct. Ultimately, grid management must obey the laws of physics, no matter what we think about the business model and regulatory aspects of it, and no matter what our theoretical models may say. While it may be possible in theory, for example, to generate enough energy from renewables and other DERs to meet 100% of grid power demand in every hour and in every location in the country, actually managing a grid that's powered that way and operating markets that are able to complete all of those energy transactions is quite another challenge. And we're not quite yet to the point where we really know how all that will be accomplished. We now turn to the news segment, but first, Lorenzo corrected me on something I said in episode 8, which was on storage. FERC Order 819 did not create a market for primary frequency response, he pointed out. It just said that sellers who are authorized by FERC to have, quote, market-based rate authority, end quote, which is most wholesale generators who already sell energy and ancillary services in markets, could offer and sell primary frequency response at market-based rates, i.e. market offer prices, if there is a market to sell into. There is no requirement in Order 819 for ISOs or RTOs to create such a market, and I appreciate the correction. Okay, on with the news. Item 1. In an appropriate coda to our last show on the macro outlook, Bernstein Research issued a report last week saying that if oil prices remain low, it could touch off a wave of sovereign defaults. Governments like Russia, Qatar, and Kuwait, which depend heavily on income from oil exports, are particularly at risk. The report notes that emerging market debt has exploded over the past decade, encouraged in part by loose monetary policies like QE, and that the collapse in commodity prices is now pushing many commodity exporting countries into double-digit fiscal deficits. And at nearly the same moment last week, the Bank for International Settlements, a bank of central banks, which functions as the world's top watchdog on monetary matters, issued a stark warning last week, which echoed my thoughts about what I call the deflationary vortex in the previous episode. The BIS said state-owned oil companies increased debt at an annual rate of 13% in Russia, 25% in Brazil, and 31% in China between 2006 and 2014 much of it in the form of dollar debt through offshore subsidiaries. Ambrose Evans Pritchard had an excellent article on The Telegraph about the BIS report, and I'll link to that in the show notes. But here's a short excerpt. Quote, 
The Bank for International Settlements fears that a perverse dynamic is at work where the energy companies in Brazil, Russia, China, and parts of the U.S. shale belt are increasing production in defiance of normal market logic, leading to a bad feedback loop that is sucking the whole sector into a destructive vortex. I'll say it again, commodities trading at these punishing low levels is very much an alloyed good. Yes, consumers benefit from paying less for gasoline and other things, but there's a whole world of hurt outside of that, ripples in the macro pond, if you will, which ultimately drag down global trade and leaves no one unscathed. And this time around, with interest rates already at or even below zero, and in case you missed it, Japan cut its interest rate to negative last week, there is really nowhere to go to make monetary policy even looser. As the BIS put it, the temptation may be to try to keep the financial booms going or to give them a new lease on life, but this would just be a palliative unless the stock of debt is adjusted. And as Ambrose Evans Pritchard put it rather ominously in his piece, the PIS seems to be telling us that the reckoning can still be orderly if we face up to reality or end in a chaotic wave of defaults if we do not. Either way, the debt must clear. Item two. In response to Nevada's decision in December to adjust its rate structures and increase fixed charges for people with rooftop solar systems, effectively killing its net metered solar market and ruining the investments that its existing solar customers have made, Senate Minority Leader Harry Reid and Senator Angus King have filed Senate Amendment 3120, which would prevent state regulators from trying anything like that again. The amendment would add language to PURPA, the landmark 1978 law, requiring state regulators to include benefits of distributed solar in any changes to their net metering valuations and prohibiting regulators from making any retroactive changes to existing net metered customers. This amendment could have far-reaching consequences and should be watched closely. Item 3. The Hawaiian island of Kauai scored a new record last week when it integrated 77% solar in its power mix, the most solar ever integrated by a U.S. utility. On four occasions in January, the Kauai Island Utility Cooperative obtained 90% or more of its electricity from renewables. Now, this is an astonishing achievement, and it points up a long-standing thesis I've had that we'll figure out how to integrate high levels of renewables on islands first, and then bring those lessons back to the mainland countries. Just a few years ago, no one really had any idea how that much so-called intermittent power could be integrated into a grid power mix, and it was really only contemplated as a theoretical possibility in academic papers. Now it's a reality. Item 4. Unicos, the German battery integration company, announced another first two weeks ago. It will extend the functionality of Germany's first commercial battery plant, a 5-megawatt battery system operated by the German utility WEMAG. Unicos designed and built the plant 18 months ago, but now, with a hardware and software upgrade, it will enable the plant to be capable of black starts, full islanding mode, and integrating renewables in grid restoration scenarios. Now, for those who aren't familiar with the term black starts, this simply means that in the case of a major grid disruption or blackout, power plants can start back up quickly using the power from this battery system, rather than requiring power from the grid or some other source to get back up and running. It's a bootstrapping. With this upgrade, it will be possible to restore power to the grid much more quickly and at a much lower cost than it has been in the past. This is a very cool innovation, and it reminds me a bit of how Tesla is now able to improve the operation of its existing cars by just issuing a software upgrade. But it also points up that battery integration is moving ahead very quickly, particularly in Germany, 
and suggests that the day might not be too far in the future when mass storage becomes a fundamental part of the grid power architecture. And best of all, the project was funded through Kickstarter, making it a truly democratic initiative. And finally, item five. Mike Grunwald of Politico, who we featured in episode one of this podcast, broke a story last week that instantly went viral about an item in President Obama's budget proposal to add a $10 a barrel tax on oil to help fund clean transportation projects like mass transit, electric cars, and high-speed rail. Ben Geeman of National Journal interviewed me about the proposal, and I've linked to his piece in the show notes. The budget proposal will, no doubt, be dead on arrival with this GOP-controlled Congress. But it's interesting for a few reasons. First, it's a different approach to a long-standing problem, funding transportation projects. Congress refuses to increase the gasoline tax that has traditionally funded these projects, so Obama is trying a different angle, and I think that's, at the very least, a worthy effort. Second, it puts a much-needed focus on energy transition in the transportation sector, and it makes that topic part of the dialogue, as well it should be. And third, it gets people thinking about some changes that we've needed to make for a long time, but didn't feel like we could do when gasoline was over $4 a gallon. Now that it's under $2, maybe the time is right to put some of those proposals on the table. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.